Navigating the American healthcare system can be a challenge. And if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you fought with a health insurance company at one point or another. Every year, insurance companies reject millions of patient claims for everything from MRIs and surgeries to medications and therapies. And appealing those denials can be challenging. My husband and I are retired and had a Medicare Advantage policy through my former employer. It worked fine until last winter when my husband needed major surgery and an extended stay in a rehab facility. The insurer denied coverage for certain prescribed medications, approved his hospital stay, and then sent me a letter denying it. We were required to appeal and fight for coverage, exacerbating an already stressful and frightening time. That was Sue in Florida. A new investigation by ProPublica and Capital Forum spotlights the case of Christopher McNaughton, who was denied coverage for a life-changing but expensive treatment. When his insurer found a contracted doctor had ruled the treatment wasn't necessary, the company was thrilled. We did get the medical review back from the gastroenterologist, and um, he states that it's not medically necessary treatment. Yeah. I knew that was coming. How can insurers have so much control over our health care? And what can we do to fight back? We'll get into that and hear from you after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. Let's get right into our discussion. Joining us now is David Armstrong. David is a senior reporter covering healthcare at ProPublica. Also with us is Patrick Rucker. Patrick is a contributing reporter at ProPublica. He's also a reporter for the Capital Forum. That's an investigative news organization. Thanks to you both for joining us. David, we just played a clip of a phone call between two people who work for United Healthcare, Christopher's insurer. Explain a bit about who they are and what we just heard. Sure. So the two people we heard on that conversation were a a nurse employed by United in what they call their special investigations unit, and then essentially um, a salesman for United. This was the person responsible for selling the health insurance plan to Penn State. Um, And they were discussing um, what became a very sensitive uh, issue that rose to the top of the company uh, about the care of Christopher McNaughton and how much United was spending for the medications that frankly uh, turned his life around uh, and made his uh, life uh, a much different experience than when he was suffering from the symptoms of ulcerative colitis. And ulcerative colitis is a chronic inflammatory intestinal disease. Christopher was in college when he was diagnosed with it. Your investigation chronicles his, his struggle to get United Healthcare to cover his treatment. What stuck out to you about his story? Well, you know, one of the reasons we were really interested in Christopher's story is everyone gets an insurance denial from time to time. It's sort of a fact of life if you're, you know, engaged in the healthcare system in America. But we really wanted to know what happens behind the scenes. How do these decisions actually get made? Who's making them? Uh, And it's really a black box for most folks. I mean, we had no idea before we went down this road. Uh, And what really stood out to us about the review of Christopher McNaughton's care Um, was how it was um, really uh, stacked against him from the start. Um, You heard uh, the salesperson laughing when he heard that Chris's care was denied. Um, And then along the way, 
Um, there was a favorable report uh, from a United doctor, very thoughtful, frankly, um, exhaustive report um, that not only said Chris's treatment was safe and necessary, but that would be really dangerous if it was changed in any way. And they, they completely buried that report. They never considered it. They called the company that produced it and told them to produce another one. Um, and then they also um, told Chris and his family that his own doctor said that Yes, his treatment should be changed. And that was just false. The doctor never said that. We talked to the doctor. Um, he's emphatic about that. In fact, internal records show uh, that he never talked about it. So it was, it was really eye-opening to us, this system, um, that in the end w- was incredibly unfair. Well, we invited United Healthcare to join the conversation. They didn't make anyone available. They did send this statement regarding Christopher's case. Quote, we covered all claims related to this treatment based on his benefit plan. He has not missed any or been delayed in receiving any treatment since he became a member with us in 2020, end quote. Patrick, in light of your reporting, what's your response to that statement? I don't know if anyone who's listening would want to be Christopher McNaughton, who for two years was engaged in this exhausting demoralizing, this is a sensitive thing I'm going to say next, but it's important to, to report. He was cons- thinking about suicide and what, whether he even wanted to continue to live because this battle with his insurer was so draining and there was never a point where it was over. There might be a time where they would extend the insurance as they've just described they've done in that statement and they might extend it a little longer, but there was never a point where they said, Christopher, we hear you. We understand you're very sick. A world-renowned doctor says you're very sick. Clearly, we need to give you attention and care indefinitely. That is something that United has never said and still won't say. Well, David, you sat down with Christopher to discuss his experiences with United Healthcare. Here's what he had to say. Sometimes the insurance companies will say, oh, like we're trying to keep healthcare costs down or they are prescribing too expensive treatments. But, well, one, it doesn't seem to be hurting their profits that much. And two, I believe that 99.9% of doctors are doing a great job and only prescribing stuff that they believe is in the best interest of their patients. And so there needs to be oversight into, and these insurance companies need to be held accountable to behave in a fair and ethical manner. David, how often are insurance companies able to bypass the advice of a patient's physician? Well, really, uh, it's, it's very frequent because most policies have this standard that the prescribed treatment must be medically necessary. And uh, there are some state and federal rules, depending on the health insurance plan, on what defines medically necessary, but it's very squishy um, and really open to interpretation. So what happens is the insurance companies employ their own doctors, or they contract with companies that have doctors that do these reviews for them, and they essentially apply their own guidelines to say, well, it's not medically necessary. You know, in Christopher's case, he had a really renowned gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic, Um, And the Mayo Clinic has been rated the top gastroenterology hospital in the country for 20 years running. I mean, it's the place you want to go if you've got a very difficult case of ulcerative colitis or or any other sort of um, bowel disease. Um, And, you know, the other thing is this this treatment worked. Chris's life changed when they came upon this, this treatment that he was undergoing. So 
It was really unsettling and jarring and upsetting, of course, to Chris McNaughton when an insurance company doctor who's never seen him, never evaluated him, and in some cases never even looked at his medical records, said this is not medically necessary. Now, Christopher's account was flagged as a high-dollar account, which is what first put it on United Healthcare's radar. Patrick, how does the price of coverage affect whether an insurance company denies a claim? United was very clear from the start that uh, we do not, this is their position, that we do not consider the costs of these, uh, this care when we're evaluating uh, what to do with these patients. All I, I could say is, that David, in my experience, having reported this for many months, is that the costs and the potential spending that the insurance company is going to have to make is at the forefront of their mind. You said yourself, they flagged it as a high-dollar account. It wasn't a basis of like, what's the best um, treatment for Chris and how do we get him there? It was more, how much is this uh, treatment costing? And then through the whole process, there were documents and references to the cost. If we could uh, reduce the prescription that this world-renowned doctor wanted to give him, how much money would that save? And they had it down to the to the dollar, how much this uh, would save. So I, I think uh, the idea that this is money or cost is not uh, something there very front of their mind would be would be a little bit um, hard to believe. Christopher's family tried to appeal, but they weren't successful. Where do things stand for him and his insurance coverage now, Patrick? It's you can imagine uh, this has been a long battle between the family and the insurer. This new, our story is probably bringing more attention to this. I don't think we can say very much about uh, exactly what's going on between the family and the insurer, but needless to say, uh, I'm sure that they're going to continue to try to deal with this one particular case. But as as I think Chris would say himself, there's there's you know hundreds of thousands of, of young men just like him out there that are in the same situation. Let's get into that in just a moment. But first, let's add another voice to the conversation. Janet Patton is the Clinical Director of Patient Experience and Quality for the Patient Advocate Foundation. Janet, welcome. Thank you, Jen. So you transitioned to patient advocacy after working for many years as a nurse. What did you notice about the world of healthcare insurance denials when you were an RN? So it's a very complex system. And I think the case that was just discussed really illustrates um, how uh, how very um, difficult it is to navigate a healthcare system and in understanding what you're up against. And I think sometimes um, patients would not fully understand the complexity of the uh, insurance and the denials. And it especially also tends to come at a time where patients are um, often you know, undergoing their own illness or the illness of a loved one. And so it really is a stress uh, and it complicates the entire picture when you're trying to you know, move forward in your own treatment um, towards, towards getting better. What are some of the common reasons for denials, Janet? So it's not unusual for an insurance company to deny because it is not a covered benefit. Um, because the provider or the care is out of network. Um, maybe they will tell you that the, um, the, the treatment is not medically necessary, uh, it has not been preauthorized, or the specific um, therapy recommended or treatment recommended is considered an investigational or experimental. Patrick, returning to Christopher's story, United Healthcare argued that his treatment was, quote, not medically necessary, despite covering his medications for years. How did they explain that abrupt shift? 
Well, let's just, uh, if we can, just stop on that phrase, which a lot of listeners might have seen on some denial letters they've gotten, which is not medically necessary. Uh, that's got a ring of something that's like ironclad or that it's grounded in something that's can't be questioned by any you know, reasonable physician or, or, or expert. And in fact, it, it's a word and phrase that has very little meaning that carries over beyond its decision and the judgment that the insurer makes. So not medically necessary means essentially whatever the insurer wants it to mean. And, but to say that for just a second, it's true that the dosage that Chris needs, and again, that was endorsed by this world-renowned expert, is higher than, um, let's call it normal. Uh, it nonetheless was effective, and to, go, to exceed the dosage that's um, within the standards of uh, certain drugs, is, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's quite common. So the, the insurer was able to say that it's not medically necessary. They also said that the dosage was just higher than they thought was needed, even though, again, it was proven to work. Here's an email we got from James who says, I sympathize with folks whose insurance claims are denied. The other side of the coin is that if insurance companies do not take steps to try to control medical costs, the cost of insurance for everyone will be out of control. David, your thoughts about that email? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that's an interesting point. It's an argument that's often made by the insurance industry. And look, we you know we need to say from the start that there's lots of waste and greed in our medical care system. It's not just insurers, but you know the drugs that Christopher McNaughton was taking are, are incredibly high priced. They they are effective, but they're not cost effective, and that's as calculated by healthcare economists who look at this. You know, the therapeutic benefit would dictate a cost that is much lower than what the drug makers are, are, are charging here. And we also know that there's you know, tests that are ordered that aren't necessary, procedures that some doctors promote that are not safe. Um, so we know that goes on. I guess the question becomes, is the insurance industry, which by the way, just had a record-breaking year in terms of profits and revenues, the, the best source to determine what care is medically necessary. They're horribly conflicted. They are mostly public companies, massive companies that report to shareholders. Are they the ones that should say, oh, this care is appropriate or not, because they have this vested interest? Healthcare insurance companies deny millions of claims each year. Janet, where should people begin the appeals process? Well, the first thing I'd like to say about that is I'd encourage every listener um, to make sure that they understand their insurance uh, companies portal and that they have a portal login set up. And the reason that that is important is because in that portal, you can find some critical documentation that you're going to need to have if you have a denial. So specifically, your plan document is typically housed on that portal. Most people don't understand that the plan document is essentially um, it's a contract between you and the insurance company. So what you get from the insurance company, that infographic that they send you talking about what is covered and at what rate, and it's typically done in a pretty user-friendly format, that's a great piece to keep, but that is not an all-inclusive plan document. The plan document will also include definitions, and it'll spell out things like experimental and investigational and the, um, the definition that your health insurance company is going to use to define that, also not medically necessary. Those are critical pieces of information that you need to understand if you have a denial. Um, I also encourage patients to uh, stay calm. 
and to try and keep the emotion out of the first discussion that you have with the insurance company. And I understand after years of working on appeals, this is very difficult for patients to do. Um, but it is important. Uh, I would also recommend that patients um, talk to the health plan and start to get themselves organized. How did you first find out that you have a problem? How was that communicated to you? Write the dates, the times, and the person that you spoke with uh, down on a piece of paper. If you're getting an um, explanation of benefits, if you're getting a denial letter, how is it that you came by that information? That again is gonna be critical. And then also uh, another thing that patients don't realize is it's very important to understand the timeline that you have that is set forth in the plan document if you choose to write an appeal. I also recommend patients talk with their physician. Uh, this is really critical as il illustrated in the case that you're discussing because what the physician spoke with the insurance company about and what the physician understood was not what the patient understood. That's not unusual, but again, that's critical information. Uh, and, and then also, you know, when you make the decision to go ahead and appeal, there are some very specific things that an appeal letter should include. Uh, I would point patients or um, caregivers out there who are listening to the Patient Advocate Foundation website. We have um, an appeal module on the web website. It's, um, it's very extensive, uh, but I think it's a really good starting place if that's something that you wanna undertake. And I also think it's important for people to know when they're in over their head. When things aren't making sense, when you can't figure things out, um, you can contact um, the Patient Advocate Foundation and we have case managers who have dealt with this before uh, and are very effective at sitting down with you and having a discussion about the exact problem and what is really going on. Janet, I have to say, as you, as you listed all of that, as, as someone who recently went through a surgery, had to go through a bunch of medical documentation, it's making me anxious just hearing you explain this process. How available is, is the kind of support you're describing through the Patient Advocate Foundation for people who maybe don't have someone to support them at home? Maybe they're an elder and they, they're on their own and they're trying to navigate the system. How available is the support? Yes, I understand that. And, um, and we are available. Um, but I, want, I do want the listeners to understand that not every denial is going to be overturned. So I want to be very transparent about that. But I also want to be transparent about, you know, the, the patient or the caregiver or, you know, whoever is going to contact the patient advocate foundation is going to have to work with us because often the insurance companies limit our ability to access some important information that we really have to have in order to move this forward. So we like to try and work as best we can as a partnership. And I understand how complex, um, you know, we're trying to have a discussion about denials and appeals in, in less than an hour's time frame. And it's a very, very complex um, process and uh, an explanation, really. We're discussing health insurance denials. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Tom in San Diego. Covering very expensive patients can make insurance simply non-viable. I believe there's a, there was a hemophiliac in Iowa who 
made Obamacare simply unavailable in his county because his annual expenses were north of a million dollars. Socialized systems around the world recognize this. There are drugs that the British NHS, for example, simply doesn't cover. And it's a difficult conversation. Obviously, everyone's life has infinite value to themselves, but the simple fact of the matter is your life doesn't have infinite value to strangers. Uh, Tom is talking about a patient in Iowa whose medical bills cost a million dollars a month in 2017. His case calls the insurance company Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield to stop selling individual health care policies in the state. But Janet, how common is it for medical bills to be that high? I don't have the statistics on how common it is, but I think um, one comment I would like to make about that is um, I understand the point that he's trying to make, uh, but that sounds to me, um, like somebody who has not you know, had the experience of, of having some sort of a debilitating or life-threatening illness um, and the care that they needed, you know, denied. So I think um, it's, it's important to um, take that voice into consideration. But, um, you know, I think, you know, at the heart of all of this, if, if we think that a single payer system for all is going to fix this system, you know, this problem, it, it isn't. Well, and Patrick, this returns to our earlier discussion about the high cost of health care in this country. What's happening at a legislative effort uh, level, rather, to, to try to get the cost of health care under control? I don't know if any lawmaker in Washington isn't have a basket full of uh, of email or emails or letters from constituents who uh, have concerns or complaints about the way they were treated by their insurers. So this is certainly on the forefront of lawmakers' minds. Um, I don't know, frankly, what uh, what could happen at the federal level anyway. I know certain states, Texas would be an example, where they just went through something quite, quite extraordinary, where um, doctors who um, had been... Uh, who had to get a, something called a prior authorization. If I can explain that for a second. If you want to get a certain surgery, maybe an MRI, a certain prescription drug, you have to seek a permission slip from your insurer before the doctor can give it to you. It's a defensible pro, uh, process in one light, but uh, it certainly can also lead to delay of care and a lot of no's from the insurer. Texas passed a law that said, look, if Dr. Smith has been found again and again to be a reliable prescriber of drugs. He doesn't um, go into the operating room wantonly and without a good reason. Get off his back. Uh, let him uh, practice medicine the way he wants, and you don't get to second-guess every move this guy makes. Uh, the term for this is called gold carding, which is a physician who's been designated as reliable, not someone who's contributing any kind of fraud, they get a pass on some of the second-guessing from the insurance company. I can tell you that is something the insurance industry fought in Texas. Uh, Texas went through a bruising battle to get that done. There are other states that are pushing for that, and, and I don't know any patient advocate who, who doesn't think that's at least one step in the right direction to uh, limit the insurance industry's ability to just say no. Well, the No Surprises Act went into effect last year, and it provides protection against surprise charges on medical bills. David, do we know what effect, if any, that law has had on the rate of health care coverage or, or just the way patients are experiencing their health care coverage? 
Uh, I'm not aware, you know, in the in the situations we're talking about that 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 laws had any real impact. Um, I mean, I think it certainly helped with people uh, <clears throat> who get emergency care or you know a, a ride in an ambulance. You know, it's been effective in that regard in terms of you know getting a surprise massive bill after the fact. Um, I did want to, uh, if I could, just for a second about the prior caller who talked about the uh, hemophiliac patient in Iowa. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, you often hear that argument, but uh, the amount of money that we spend in this country on healthcare is far and away more than any other developed country. Um, and built into that is a lot of profit making that's going on. Um, as I said before, the insurance companies are enjoying record breaking profits. Um, the cost of these drugs is often too high, um, and that's, I think, an issue that Congress has taken up. Um, you know, Christopher McNaughton actually looked into moving to Canada with his grandmother when United initially denied his care. And they did some research and found out the Canadian government pays a fraction of what we pay in this country for the same drugs he was getting. So I think that there's plenty of areas to look into lower costs, but not necessarily by denying patients their care. Here's an email we got from Chris. My mom continued to receive bills for my dad's chemotherapy treatment for months after his death. The insurance company threatened to send her bills to a collection agency even after she explained that he could not have received chemo in July when he passed away in March. They finally stopped harassing her when a candidate running for the local DA stepped in. Janet, any advice for someone who may be facing a similar situation where they're continuing to be billed for services that weren't actually provided? Yeah, I think that um, bringing in some of your local officials is not a bad idea. And I want to go back to something that I said earlier, because I don't want it to be misunderstood. I um, 100% would advocate that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So I'm not at all saying that people shouldn't rattle cages and speak up. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is when you're on the phone with your insurance company and you're, um, you're screaming and you are really preventing the, um, the insurance company or really giving them a reason to hang up on you, trust me, they will. I've been on plenty of calls with patients um, who, who've gotten very emotional, and then the insurance company will just terminate the call. So I think that it's really important to be, um, be vocal. Uh, you just have to do it in an appropriate way. And I think in this sort of an instance, there is no reason that you shouldn't call in your elected officials, um, the state um, you know, office of uh, insurance, whatever it takes in order to get something like that stopped. I have I have no problem at all saying that. But I do think that, you know, when we we talk about. Um, you know, really uh, getting down to the heart of the issue, sometimes, you know, you have to. um you have to use what I would consider to be some pretty, you know, savvy means in order to accomplish that. And I think, you know, getting your elected officials involved can be very helpful. Now, Patrick, sometimes appealing a healthcare denial means suing an insurance company. What legal rights do patients have in those cases? A, a lawsuit is expensive. It's uncertain. It's going to probably mean months, if not years, of time where you're not going to have care and. And that is not a tool that's available to to most people. Um, I think, but to answer your question, you go before the court with um, rights that you might have been, in, in the case of Christopher, the question was, were they being treated fairly? There are doctrines about just fairness. Uh, are contracts straightforward and honest? You can uh, lean into those kinds of questions. Um, one thing that's interesting, uh, 
United isn't alone in saying, look, when we don't give uh, Patrick or David their uh, drug, we're not prescribing or declining to treat him. We are just uh, abiding by the contract that we have with Patrick. And the insurance industry has been very effective at uh, arguing that they are not giving care or denying care. They are just um, enforcing their the contract. So they have uh, some very time-tested defenses uh, if anyone wants to claim that they were harmed by a decision. So it will certainly be uh, challenging. There aren't a lot of federal um, protections. I, as I said, there are questions about fraud, fairness, those kinds of things that you could certainly bring into the discussion, but it's going to be daunting. We got this tweet from Alicia that echoes that point. Don't forget the millions of claim and claims health insurers end up approving only after the patient and doctor have jumped through multiple hoops or the patients whose preferred medicine is not approved, but the less effective version is. We also got this email from Robin who says, I work for a dentist. We get many insurance denials saying not medically nece- necessary. Our dentists write letters of appeal stating the reasons for the procedures that they perform. Once you have your medical professional advocate for you, the insurance company many times caves in and pays the claim. Hopefully the doctors out there will advocate for their patients, as do our dentists. Janet, can you briefly speak to that, the importance of having your your doctors, your medical professionals work with you on appealing these denials? It's critical. Um, Yes. So what's really important to understand, if you choose to go the appeal route, um, you have to address the specific cited reason for the denial. So for example, that's when you, you know, you really have to drill down to what your appeal letter says, um, what the verbiage is, and and how are you going to counter that argument, you know, so to speak. And so if it's for example, not medically necessary or experimental or investigational, then what you really need is your appeal letter uh, uh, to be written, you know, by a physician who can substantiate that claim. And trust me, over the years, you know, I've seen a lot of doctors who've written a lot of letters and some of them are excellent and some of them are just sort of a canned, um, if you will, um, you know, standard uh, template that they use uh, and which may or may not address the specific reason for denial. But if you need a specific treatment, what you really are going to have to do is look at the specific reason for denial and then the appeal letter needs to be tailored with um, documentation of why you need that treatment and the um, the clinical uh, backup, which typically comes in the form of peer-reviewed journal articles uh, from the from the physician, and some patients will actually, depending upon you know how savvy they are, sometimes they will have done their own research and can provide this on their own. Um, but it's something again that you know at the Patient Advocate Foundation, this is something that we can help. Um, patients put together and um, and then support them through the appeal process. David, as you continue this reporting, you mentioned a little bit about what you'll be looking at next, but what can we watch for? Yes, yeah, so we we um, we are going to look more into the behind the the scenes um, activities of insurers when they're considering these um, appeals and uh, claims. So. We do, as Patrick mentioned, want to hear from people on the inside because it really is uh, such a, a opaque system, a black box, if you will. And we think the more we learn about that, the more successful people might be um, in getting the care they need. 
That was David Armstrong. He's a senior reporter covering health care at ProPublica. Also with us, Patrick Rucker. He's a contributing reporter at ProPublica. He also covers finance for the Capital Forum. And Janet Patton, the clinical director of patient experience and quality for the Patient Advocate Foundation. David, Patrick, Janet, thanks for joining us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.